Brisbane uh, Labor Day, indeed Labor Day all over Australia, um, began its uh, its existence in the campaigns to win the eight-hour day. So uh, the initial push for the eight-hour day in Australia was led by stonemasons down in, in Melbourne, um, particularly the stonemasons working on the um, the law faculty building at the University of um, at Melbourne University. Um, so they, first of all, in the, in the 1850s, they tried to talk the um, construction bosses into agreeing to an eight-hour day um, and when talks broke down on that um, there was one uh, British immigrant and former chartist James Stevens who was um, working on that construction site at Melbourne Uni and basically he organised his co-workers um, and said we're going to walk off um, and they did uh, they downed tools and walked off the job on the 21st of April 1856 and they marched to Parliament House and along the way they were joined by um, workers from other sites, other construction sites. Um, so it was, you know, <coughs> the, the struggle for the eight-hour day, um, starting in Melbourne, uh, came out of an, um, a breakthrough by rank-and-file workers basically walking off the job. And over coming months, the employers in Melbourne agreed to reduce the working day from 10 to 8 hours with no loss of pay. Um, and so that was the... Uh, the, the breakthrough in terms of the ATR day and workers in the construction trades in Melbourne <clears throat> decided to mark the, the victory annually with a march and celebration. So we had the birth of what was called Eight Hours Day, uh, which is the forerunner of Labor Day. In Mianjin uh, and in Ipswich, um, the stonemasons launched a similar campaign in 1857, so the, the following year. Um, oh, go Ipswich, what a progressive yeah, little yeah, it, town it, it is. It kicked it off, actually. There was a worker in Ipswich who went by the name of Yakka. And we don't actually know who Yakka really was, but he wrote to the, um, the press under the name of Yakka. And in February 1857, Yakka wrote a, a letter to the main uh, newspaper in Brisbane, Mianjin, putting the case for the eight-hour day. Um, and with a reduced working day, Yakka wrote... We will be able to mix a little study and a little relaxation with our common goals. Um, and the campaign that um, Yaka and his comrades kicked off gained momentum after a meeting in September 1857 um, where the workers there unanimously passed a resolution basically declaring that they would adopt the eight-hour system um, because it was conducive to health and mental improvement. Um, one worker at that meeting, a guy called James Spence, actually made the argument that by reducing the working day from 10 to 8 hours, it would reduce drunkenness in Mianjin and Ipswich. His argument being was that in those extra two hours of, of work, the uh, the workers got particularly thirsty. Yeah. Right? So if they gave them two less fewer hours to work, uh, they would be uh, less inclined to, to get on the grog. It wasn't exactly a convincing argument, but it was one of the arguments. Sounds good, huh? Yeah, <laughs> I like um, it. So anyhow, at that meeting, they resolved um, uh, that they would give the bosses warning, um, and that they would, if if the bosses didn't agree, they would simply impose the eight hour day um, from the first of January, eighteen fifty eight. Um, as it turned out, the 1st of January came and went um, without a change in hours. And in February, uh, Yucca wrote to the press again, explaining that the workers uh, would not impose the reduction until the winter months. But um, as it turned out, things moved rather faster than Yucca had anticipated, because on the 3rd of April, a notice appeared in the, uh, the local press declaring that from the following Monday, work in the building trades would commence at 8am and finish at 5pm with one hour off for lunch. 
Um, and so it proved to be the case. From the Monday the 5th of April 1858, um, workers in the construction trades around Mianjin and the surrounding districts worked an eight-hour day. So they won it in, um, in Melbourne in 1856 and, and the construction workers won it in uh, Mianjin and Ipswich and south-east Queensland generally in 1858. Seven years later, uh, and this gets us to the, the celebration of the day annually, they decided that they needed to celebrate this victory um, because seven years later it was well and truly entrenched. Um, there was no going back. They had their eight hours. So they decided it was a, a worthwhile thing to celebrate each year. Um, but there seems to be some confusion because, as I just explained, they actually won the day on, on at the beginning of April, but... When they decided to celebrate it, they, they settled on the 1st of March, which was the Welsh St David's Day uh, as the date for the celebration. So Brisbane's first eight hours day was held on the 1st of March, 1865. So the march on the weekend uh, marked the 157th year since the first Labor Day event in, in, in Brisbane. Um, and in only two of those years has there not been a march um, last year because of COVID and in 1942 because of the, the Second World War. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the workers, the different groups of workers involved in the 19th century uh, around this. In some accounts of the history, uh, it's implied that in those early years, the eight-hour working day was limited to workers with trade skills in the construction industry. Well, this wasn't actually the case. Um, they certainly kicked it off. But workers across many sectors began agitating for the shorter day, and some groups were successful. A week after the first march in 1858, a letter appeared in the press supporting eight hours for women um, in, the, um, in the clothing manufacturing industry in Mianjin. Um, and in the same year, the blacksmiths demanded the eight-hour day. Perhaps the most impressive story um, came from the railway navvies. In late um, October 1865, workers building and, and repairing the railway line from Ipswich out to Toowoomba and then west from Toowoomba to Dolby walked off the job. Again, a, a workers' initiative, not coming from the leadership. They walked off the job, insisting they would not return until they had won uh, an eight-hour day with a wage of eight shillings per day. Um, and they, I mean, they walked, this, as I said, late October. They had good reason for their demand. At the time, and I, and I checked the figures, um, it was 43 degrees uh, Celsius in in the sun, so no wonder forty three degrees. Forty three degrees. So no wonder they were uh, motivated to say no. Yeah. This is this is too much. Yeah. We want an eight hour working yeah. day. So they would have been people suffering from heat stroke Absolutely. while working those yeah. long hours. And you also have to remember that a lot of these workers uh, doing these manual labouring jobs uh, had come from the UK, uh, and and a lot of these guys on this on this job, they were fairly recent. Uh, migrants from the UK. So, so their bodies wouldn't have adjusted. Yep, they're yeah. coming from the UK. And they're wearing wool. Yep, and they, that's right, and they're working in the sun, wool. 43 degrees. Yeah. yeah, That's a serious health risk. Absolutely. So they walked off the job, um, and up to, up to three, uh, 300 of them paraded through the streets of Toowoomba chanting eight hours work and eight shillings wages. And within um, two days, work along the entire line had stopped. Um, and they went along the line and they pulled out every group of, of workers working on that 
um, project. And they actually formed a group called the Working Men's Committee and they issued a manifesto calling on fellow workers throughout the colony to fall in and join the eight hours movement so that a 10 hour day would never be heard of again. Um, and they declared that they would not end the strike until their hours were reduced. And part of their manifesto read, we do not live for ourselves alone. We live that posterity as well as ourselves may reap the benefits of our labours. And after a week on strike, they won. They went back to work with the eight hour day. They didn't get their increase in um, wages, but they won the most important thing for them. And that was a reduction in their working day. Um, so here's a group of unskilled, so-called unskilled workers, not with trade skills, but manual labourers uh, winning the eight hour day. Um, and similarly, in 1876, the labourers at the Brisbane dry docks uh, walked off the job um, and struck until they uh, won the eight-hour day as well. So the important point here is that it's not just the, 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 the tradespeople in the construction industry who had the eight-hour day. Um, other groups were coming out and, um, and going on strike and, and agitating for it and, in some cases, winning it. So uh, momentum begin to, began to pick up um, for um, all workers to have a, a, a reduction in, in, in the working day. Um, just another little bit of the history that's worth mentioning, um, the origins of ma marching to the exhibition ground, you know, uh, this weekend the march uh, ended at the exhibition grounds and, and that's been the case in, in, in recent times and that actually is, there's a long history of that, in fact uh, the exhibi exhibition grounds has been the destination for Labor Day marches in Brisbane uh, for most of the history, there have been some some parts of the history where people have marched to somewhere else. There were a few years back in the 90s where we marched to Musgrave Park. Uh, there were a few years where we went to Albert Park up, up the top of Brisbane. Um, some years we went to Roma Street Parklands after it was built. For most of the history, exhibition, the exhibition grounds has been the destination. Um, and that started, in, in what I've been able to ascertain, that first started in 1878. Uh, so the committee that decided on, on, on marching to the exhibition grounds in 1878 uh, included delegates from the stonemasons, the ironworkers, the carpenters, the plasterers, the labourers, the dry dock men, the quarrymen and the shipwrights. So again, it, it emphasises the point that there were uh, skilled tradespeople there, but there were also labourers from the docks, from the railways and so on, um, and they were all involved. But the, the, the most prominent absence, it seems to me, um, is... There were, there were no uh, women workers represented. I did notice when you were reading that all out. I was, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say the women workers. Yeah, yeah no. So there, there were that, that, those early committees and those early Labor days, there was no representation of women workers. And, um, and there were prominent groups of women workers, particularly in retail. Um, the so they, they called them the shop girls, and also in the factories making clothes, dresses, and so on. Um, and they called them the factory girls. So Jeez, even back then, uh, um, retail workers needed a, a militant <laughs> fighting union. That's hey? right. Yeah. So even though it had been raised right back in the early days with that letter to the press, um, it wasn't really until the 
the beginnings of the 1890s with the formation of the Brisbane Women's Union that you, you got a concerted push for reduction of hours for, for women workers. And there was also a Royal Commission that looked into the conditions and hours of work, uh, including those groups. And lots of evidence came out about the appalling conditions and so on that women had to work in. Um, but it actually took even longer um, uh, for women to appear in the march. In 1903, um, a person, presumably a woman, who went by the name of Comrade Mary, uh, wrote a letter to the worker newspaper declaring, Someday it will not be a one-sexed procession. Brisbane women unionists will march in the ranks, each woman carrying a flag. Um, and it, but it would actually take five more years for that to happen. As far as I can discover, the first year that women participated in the Brisbane eight-hour day march was in 1908, when the Women Workers Union entered afloat with a very clear class message. Uh, an article in the worker titled Women to the Front reported that um, a lorry, um, a vehicle, was converted into a sweater's den. So the sweaters were the, the, the employers, the exploiters of of labour, a sweater's den, with women and girls toiling at their machines, while in their midst, seated in luxurious idleness and bedizened with jewellery, was the sweater lady. So they're making a clear class point, a clear class Class distinction. struggle. Yeah, between the women workers um, and the, the, uh, the well-to-do... The ruling class. The well-to-do women who were benefiting from the, the products of these women's labour. Um, so this was the first time for Brisbane, 1908, but it wasn't the first time for Australia. In Melbourne in the same year, women tobacco workers marched with their union. Um, in previous years in Queensland, women in the local Labor League in Chartist Towers of all places had marched in the local procession, while in Western Australia, the Taylorresses Union had previously marched um, in, the, in the Labor Day parade. Um, but in Mianjin itself, 1908, represents the first year that we actually see women marching in the, in the procession. And presumably Comrade Mary would have been one of them. Uh, I, would, I would imagine so, yes. Again, we don't know exactly who Comrade Mary was, but um, yes, I, I'm pretty sure she would have been there in, in, the, in the ranks. So um, the other important part of the history is, is the shift from March to May, because as I said, this was, these, these rallies and marches were occurring on the... Uh, beginning of March um, and there was a shift uh, from the 1st of March to the 1st of May which brought the event into line with the creation of an international May Day and earlier in the program you were, you were talking about the 1st of May movement and so on and the, and the push to go back to the, to the 1st of May. So it's interesting to look at this history, uh, how it came to be an event at the beginning of, of May. So it stems from, um, in a sense, the internationalisation of the workers' movement in Australia. So the idea of an international day of workers' union, uh, unity dates from uh, a conference of American and Canadian trade unions in, in 1884. Uh, and they set the 1st of May 1886 as the day that workers would commence strike action for the eight-hour day. Um, and the interesting point is that this idea of announcing a day and just declaring it as the day that workers would work eight hours was actually taken from the Australian experience. 
So Australia, Australian workers pioneered that notion, that tactic of just saying, right, this is the day. If the employers don't agree, we're going to work eight hours anyhow. And so the Americans and Canadians adopted this idea but made it the 1st of, of May 1886 as the day that this would, would start. Um, and 1st of May then became an established international day at the inaugural Congress of the Second International, the, the grouping of international socialist organisations that, that occurred in Paris in 1889. So after discussing the campaign in America, the delegates in Paris declared, there shall be organised a great international demonstration at a fixed date so that on the same agreed day in every country and in every town the workers shall call upon the state for legal reduction of the working day to eight hours. In view of the fact that a similar demonstration has been decided upon by the American Federation of Labor for the 1st of May 1890, this day is adopted for the international demonstration. Uh, so you see in this resolution a kind of amalgamation of an economic demand for a reduction of the working day uh, with uh, an internationalist perspective, which was one of the defining features of the socialism of that time. Now, in, in Mianjin and Australia more broadly, um, the internationalist worldview by people on the so-called left was, was very distorted and compromised by, by the racialized attitudes of labour movement leaders like William Lane. Um, nevertheless, a transnational approach to solidarity appealed to many workers in, in Australia um, who could see the value in, a, in broad worker unity around, uh, around and against the global power of capital. Um, so this was evident in 1889 when Australian unions raised a massive £30,000 for the striking London dock workers, um, which was an injection of funds that ultimately uh, allowed the dock workers to continue on with their struggle and win. Um, so £30,000 is an enormous amount. I did some figures and that, that comes to around $4 million in today's money. So Australian workers donated $4 million to support their comrades on the docks in London. Solidarity. Yeah. And so you can see this internationalism emerging in the, in the Australian movement. So, yes, you get in the, in the eight, late 1880s and the early 1890s this in, international perspective coming into the labour movement. There'd always been a strong relationship with the British uh, trade unions because that's where a lot of the, the skilled workers had come from, but you get this new internationalist perspective that was coming in as, as part of um, socialist ideas coming into the, the workers' movement in Australia. One of the, one of the crucial events... Um, um, that, that Jackson just reminded me of off air was the Haymarket massacre in, um, in Chicago. So I mentioned the struggle in America for the eight hour day. Uh, 1886, I think it was, um, there was a, um, a large demonstration of workers um, in Haymarket Square in, in Chicago, um, which led to a major confrontation with police. Um, a bomb went off. Uh, it, to this day, it, it, no one really knows for certain uh, who was in, responsible for that. But a number of people were injured and a number of cops were um, injured and, and killed. Um, and an, uh, an, uh, it was basically used as a pretext to arrest uh, anarchist workers who were involved in um, that movement at the time. And they were 
put on trial um, and some of them were uh, executed. That event, in terms of uh, the socialist groupings in Australia at the time, including here in Mianjin, had a profound uh, impact. Um, and I think it cemented this, this notion that workers of the world uh, had, had one cause. Uh, and so you get this uh, spread of this internationalist perspective amongst the workers' movement. And as I was saying before the break, um, this had a, a, an appeal to particularly workers who didn't have uh, trade skills, because if you didn't have trade skills, the only thing you could really rely on to improve your situation uh, was your own organisational capacity and the capacity for solidarity from other workers. So this notion of a transnational workers' movement um, uh, had a lot of appeal. So it's not surprisingly that it's not surprising that you get uh, workers without trade skills being at the forefront of this um, movement to to recognise May Day as the as the as the Labor Day in um, in Mianjin and indeed uh, the first place in this country where May Day became the the day of of, of workers um, um, coming together. Uh, and celebrating and demanding improvements was the striking shearers and um, roustabouts and other workers in Barcaldon in 1891. Um, so the first May Day in Australia was um, was held by those uh, striking workers. Um, and the press reported that uh, 1,340 workers, 618 of them on horseback, assembled at their strike camp outside Barcaldon and this is on the 1st of May 1891, and they proceeded through the streets of Barcaldon behind the banner of the Australian Labor Federation. Uh, and the press reported that in the procession, uh, every civilised country, and of course uh, that's a very loaded word, uh, because it, in their minds that excluded a lot of, a lot of people and a lot of workers, but um, nevertheless they said that every civilised country was represented uh, in that there were Russians there, there were Swedes there, there were French workers, Danish workers, and so on. Um, and, the, and the press report said that this shows that Labor's cause is won the world over, foreshadowing the time when the swords shall be turned into ploughshares and liberty, peace and friendship will knit together the nations of the earth. So that's 1891, and that's, again, workers themselves taking the initiative and holding the first May Day uh, rally in March in, in Australia. Two years later, in 1893, Mianjin unions shifted their procession from March to May uh, with a view, um, as they expressed in the, in the paper, of getting more into harmony with the labour movement through the world. So, 1891 in Barcaldon, 1893 in Mianjin. Um, we get um, May, the beginning of May, and particularly the 1st of May, May Day, being the day where this, uh, this event occurs. Um, the change of date, however, didn't bring about a, a change of name. It was still known as the Eight Hours Day. Um, so in, in, in keeping with the international struggles for a shorter working day, um, which was a focus on Eight Hours, the name remained the Eight Hours Day. Um, but by the, uh, by the 1900s, it was increasingly being referred to as Labor Day. And there were two reasons for this shift. 
On the left, I think activists were arguing the name needed to be broadened to reflect the wider concerns and aspirations of workers, and especially given the fact that many workers by that stage had already won eight hours. Um, so, uh, for example, in 1916, uh, a left-wing uh, worker and trade unionist, Norman Freeman, wrote to the Labor press arguing for the change of name. Eight hours day, he contended, typifies conservatism in the ranks of organised labour, and no such element must be allowed to encumber the glorious movement which works for the emancipation of the workers. And he supported the... the I like the sounds of him. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, I think he was all right. Uh, and he supported the, the change of name from Eight Hours Day to, to Labor Day. But ironically, the Conservatives were also happy to embrace this change, for it allowed an ambiguity to creep into the meaning of the day. Calling it Labor Day, uh, rather than May Day, allowed the event to be closely associated with the Labor Party, and not just the Labor movement as a broad movement of workers. Uh, indeed, there were, and in fact still are, Labor Party people who claim it as their day. Uh, so, from a left perspective, Freeman would have been better served arguing for a change to May Day, in keeping with the rest of the world. Um, but anyhow, from May, the, May 1922, Eight Hours Day in Brisbane became Labor Day, and that name has been with us ever since. And the catalyst for that change, the final kind of straw that forced the change in name, was the winding up of the old Eight Hours Day Committee and a new Trades Hall Council taking over the running of Labor Day. And here is uh, here's the beginning of this history of, of uh, conflict and contestation uh, in, in Labor Day. And um, I want to concentrate on that a bit because I think it's important to understand that despite the rhetoric that this is... Um, uh, supposedly a day of worker un unity, uh, it's always been a day of um, ideological and political contestation and that was there right from the beginning of the change to the name Labor Day. And the transfer of control um, uh, from the old committee to the Trades Hall Council um, came about, there was an attempt to, well, moves were made to amalgamate three union organisations at the time, three separate bodies. There was the Brisbane Industrial Council, which had renamed itself the Trades Hall Council. There was the Trades Hall Board, which was a body that basically controlled the, the Trades Hall um, building. Uh, and there was the eight-hour day committee. And the last two were quite conservative bodies. Um, and the interim committee for the new council... Just, just, just to, there's, yeah. there's things like that still happening. Yes. Right now... Pretty confusing. Uh, you use Ipswich as the example. Uh -huh. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, a board that, that manages the, the, um, the trades hall. Yep. And then it's a, a QCU Ipswich looks after the rally. Yes. So, you, yeah, you've got these two different uh, organisations in the same yeah. space, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. in, in the case of Mianjin, the Trades Hall Board and the 8-Hour Day Committee uh, were um, organisations very closely aligned with the Labor Party uh, and with the unions that were close to the Labor Party, particularly the Australian Workers' Union. Um, uh, and that's a history that we probably all know something about. Um so the tr there was a new trades and labour um, trades hall council established um, that tended to have a more progressive outlook, um, and 
essentially made the other two organisations very nervous. Um, so one of the sticking points for all organisations merging into the Trades Hall Council uh, was the rules of the new council debarred sitting members of parliament from holding positions. And this particularly upset a fellow called George Lawson, who was the president of the Eight Hour Days Committee. And he was al also happened to be a member of the, a Labor member of the Legislative Council, the Upper House in the Queensland Parliament. Um, more generally, the Conservative unions align with the Eight Hour Committee and were reluctant to join a peak organisation where, where more progressive perspectives were dominant and which were often critical of the Labor Party. Um, so, but the trades hall progressives stuck to their guns and they appealed directly to the rank and file of the unions by calling a mass meeting in June 1920. And up to 400 workers turned up and after a lively discussion they fully backed the new trades hall council. So as Labor Day approached in 1921, there was still no resolution to this conflict. The Trades Hall Council formed a May Day committee, and note the name, they wanted to, to, to use May Day as the term. They formed a May Day committee, while the old Eight Hours Day committee, which renamed itself the Brisbane Labor Day Committee, still existed as a separate body. So you had two, two bodies. Each body had its own set of union affiliates. In the end, each group organised its own event. The Trades Hall Council organised a May Day gathering uh, on the 1st of May and the Labor Day Committee held a march in Sports Day at the Exhibition Grounds on the 2nd of May. And it was that one, of course, that attracted the Labor politicians. So right from the very beginning of Labor Day, uh, there was this conflict. And the very first one, of, un under the auspices of Labor Day, there were actually two events. Um, and in a sense, this set the pattern for the rest of the history, which one could argue still uh, exists today. Oh, definitely, yes. Uh, isn't it uncanny? Some of the things that you're talking about is uh, is uh, still, well, not maybe still happening, has returned. Um, yeah. In a sense, the pattern was set in the early 20s when, when, when the, the shift to the name Labor Day first kicked off. Um, but in 1930, um, the situation, in a sense, was reversed because if you recall... Uh, the story of 1920-21 was about um, the Trades Hall Council being the progressive body, um, being opposed by other conservative bodies within the union movement that were very closely aligned with the Labor Party. Well, in 1930, the situation was reversed. So you had the Trades Hall Council, by then renamed the Trades and Labor Council, uh, still controlling Labor Day, but by now it had become the conservative body, uh, closely uh, allied to the the Queensland Labor government uh, at the time. Um, and by then, the perceived threat uh, came from the Communist Party and the unions with communist leaderships. That year, 1930, a communist contingent marched through the city um, intend intending to join up with the main Labor Day procession. Um, and the Labor government set the, the cops on them. Uh, with batons and four um, members of the communist contingent were arrested and charged with disrupting the peace. Jeff, other than the police side of things, yeah. that happened in Sydney on Saturday okay. where there was a second 
uh, movement, the May Day One movement, that is dominated by uh, uh, communist leaders of the trade union movement down there, and they uh, commandeered their own uh, march and then joined in with all the others. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. extraordinary how, you know, there's uh, uh, this discussion has been fantastic because... Maybe I could use an easy, easy phrase here and say we haven't learnt from history. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. So, nineteen thirty, um, communist contingent um, intent on joining the main parade, set upon by police with batons. Uh, four members of that contingent charged with disrupting the uh, the peace. So, um, and and this was a period of heightened class struggle. Um, remember 1930 is, is around the height of the Depression. A lot of those workers in the Communist contingent, contingent were unemployed workers and the Communist Party played a very significant role in organising unemployed workers um, and they were you know, making demands against the state Labor government around support for uh, the unemployed. And the so irony. Sorry, you've seen Jackson and I look at each other. <laughs> the ironies here is is amazing. Yeah. So that's 1930. In 1931, uh, it happens again. Communists were set upon by cops when they attempted to march on on May Day, on the first of May, uh, which which was, which was again separate. The main the main parade was on the third, three days later. Um, but when communists attempted to march on Lab on May Day, first of May, they were again set upon by the police. Um, so I want to leap forward now to 1948, um, because the same thing. Uh, It'd be the height of union membership in Iran. Yeah, that's after right. The war, so yeah? that, that that period in the post-war era is the height of union membership, but it's also the beginnings of the Cold War. Um, and this is the most dramatic split of all in the history of Labor Day in, uh, in Queensland. In 1948, the Hanlon Labor government and the, the unions allied to it threatened to refuse to join the march if the TLC, which was by then uh, led by uh, communists and left Labourite um, uh, trade unionists. So the Hanlon Labor government and the right-wing unions um, threatened to refuse to march uh, if the TLC organised Labor Day parade allowed the Communist Party to participate with banners and placards that were in any way critical of the government. <laughs> um, so the AWU was one of course, the, 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 the union that was most heavily involved with the Labor Party and on the right of the industrial movement. Uh, the AWU General Secretary, Clary Fallon, declared his union would not join any march controlled by communists. On the day, a small contingent of AWU members did march, but not officially behind the AWU, and the event was boycotted by the Labor Party and the Conservative unions. In 1949, that boycott um, was even stronger. And then things came to a head in 1950 when the march permit, um, which had to be issued and approved by the police and so on, uh, was issued to the AWU-ALP-dominated Australian Labor Day Celebration Committee, which was a, a rival body uh, set up in opposition to the TLC's Labor Day Committee. The Celebration Committee was also given permission to use the exhibition grounds. 
So this effectively wrested control of the event from the Trades and Labor Council and put it in the hands of this Labor Day Celebration Committee, which was run by the AWU um, and unions on the right. The Celebration Committee um, uh, sent out invitations, so, so participation, and this might sound familiar to people involved in events this weekend, participation in the event was by invitation only, uh, and the CPA, the Communist Party and Communist-led unions were excluded. The AWU ALP Control Committee wrote to businesses inviting them to sponsor the march, assur oh. <laughs> assuring them that no communists would be participating. And I read one of the letters and it said, as partners in industry, employees and employers with an Australian outlook understand and will do everything to combat the menace of communism. Therefore, we sincerely hope that those who can will respond to this appeal. Uh, so they were excluding the left and they were appealing to business for, for financial support. A last-minute agreement allowed a combined march to proceed, but acrimony erupted on the day when uh, Joe Bukowski, who was a stalwart of the AWU and secretary of the ALP-aligned committee, accused the Trades and Labor Council of reneging on a commitment not to allow communists to march behind their own banner. Um, and that year, the Eureka Youth League marched behind their own banner and the Eureka Youth League was a was a communist party organisation. So acrimony broke out again. In 1951 the Bukowski committee effectively banned the left-wing Trades and Labor Council unions and the Communist Party from the official parade. The, the Trades and Labor Council responded by attempting to organise a rival march from Trades Hall at least 800 police were mobilised to surround Trades Hall to prevent the march from getting underway. Um, and they, they couldn't march because they were simply, they were outnumbered by the, by the 800 police. police officers? Yes, they brought them in from all over the countryside oh, wow. um, and mobilised them to, to surround Trades Hall to prevent the TLC from organising their own... Would that, would that have been a Labor government in yeah, play? That's, yeah, that's yeah, right. So yeah. this, is the this is the Labor government mm. um, of, uh, of the day. Um, and that kind of... That settled the issue from then right through until the early 70s. This, this alternative committee that had been set up um, retained control of Labor Day events. Um, it wasn't until the early 70s, really, that the, the Trades and Labor Council was able to, to regain control of, of, of the day. Um, so here you had a situation where you had an official Labor Day parade going ahead. Um, Communist-led uh, unions, and that included a lot of unions at that time, as well as Communist Party organisations, were, were prevented from joining it. And when they attempted to, to have their own March through the auspices of the Trades and Labor Council, uh, they were prevented physically by the by the police mobilisation. So I jump ahead to 1969, the Building Workers Industrial Union. Uh, they allowed student st radical students to march in its contingent. So remember 1969. This is the height of the the radical student mobilisation against the Vietnam War and military conscription, and so on. Um, and there were a lot of radical students from the University of Queensland uh, who were trying to forge alliances with workers and they wanted to march on Labor Day and they weren't allowed, but the, uh, the Building Workers Industrial Union 
uh, which had communist leadership at the time, um, allowed them to march with their contingent. And clashes erupted at the exhibition ground when students waving red and black flags heckled Gough Whitlam with chants of socialism yes, Whitlam no. And they attempted to intervene on the official platform. Uh, and consequently this led to another crackdown on dissidents in the coming years. Yeah. So we, we get this cycle of, uh, of uh, left-wing criticism and then censorship or in, in worst-case scenarios, police being mobilised against the left. Jump ahead to 1978-79. Um, so after the events of 69, a sort of loosely organised red contingent began to march at the back of the parade. And during the Right to March campaign in 1977-78, this became a major focus of mobilisation. Banned from the official parade, in 1978, some 12,000... Uh, left-wing people marched at the back behind a red contingent banner. And that contingent included socialist parties, Latin Americans, the Campaign Against Nuclear Power and the Civil Liberties Coordinating Committee. Uh, a request to have a trade unionist from Chile speak on the official platform was knocked back. Women stormed the platform, the official platform, and Megan Martin, uh, one of the radical students and also a member of the Communist League spoke through a megaphone. They cut the officials cut the power off. <laughs> uh, so Megan spoke through a megaphone um, uh, to to the people assembled there. The next year, the Red Contingent organised its own platform within the exhibition grounds, and more people gathered around it than listened to the official speeches. Um, when prominent prominent socialist unionists, one of the, one of the prominent socialists. Um, uh, unionists who spoke at the Reds platform was later beaten up um, by goons as, as a payback. Um, and in those, in those years, 77, seven, sorry, 78, 79, um, the Red contingent at the back was actually larger than the official contingents in the, in the parade. Um, and ever since then, a Red contingent has marched at the back except for this year when, again, a ban on outsiders was imposed under the pretext of COVID. Um, and for that history, 1978-79 and the, um, the Red Contingent, uh, I, I want to thank Ian Kerr because um, it's, it's not easy to, to tease out that history. Uh, and Ian was involved and others um, that I've spoken to. And um, so a lot of those details I want to thank Ian for. But that was 78-79. Um, and so ever since then, we've, there's been a red contingent, as I say, but not this year. And, then, and now I'll come to uh, what Bill's been waiting for, 1986. Um, in 1986, uh, 1985 and 86, there was a major industrial dispute going on in Queensland, which you may be aware of. It was the Sequeb dispute. Um, uh, electrical linesmen employed by the South East Queensland Electricity Board were sacked um, by the government um, for resisting an attempt to impose contracts, individual contracts on them. And uh, there was um, a, a major dispute involving all unions across Queensland. Indeed, unions from interstate were, were involved in that. The rank-and-file leaders of the CQEB workers um, got to a point where they formed the view that the Trades and Labor Council leadership 
was, um, in their words, selling them out. So when it came to Labor Day in 1986, there was quite a lot of tension um, before the thing even got underway because you had Sequeb workers organised to, to march um, and, of course, again, it was, it was a day controlled by the Trades and Labor Council um, and there was a very angry feeling amongst many of the Sequeb workers that they had been sold out. So this kind of set the, set the scene. Um, and what happened at the exhibition grounds that year was that um, um, support, some of the Sequeb workers and their supporters tried to get one of the rank-and-file leaders of the Sequeb workers an opportunity to speak on the official platform, and that was denied. Um, and in, in the ensuing heated argument... Um, a physical confrontation erupted. So there was actually um, a brawl between supporters of the rank-and-file Sequeb workers um, and, um, and those uh, from the, the Trades and Labor Council defending the official platform. Um, it was quite, quite an ugly event. Um, and in fact, um, I, won't name, I won't name her, but a, uh, a, a great comrade of mine still proudly retains the jacket from that day with the sleeve torn out as a memento of events on that day. Um, so there was, again, the situation where um, people were wanting to be critical of the Labor Party and of the leadership of the trade union, the official leadership of the trade union movement, um, and they were denied an opportunity to express their criticisms uh, through, the, through the official forums. Um, and it seems to me... Uh, this is, again, this pattern in the history. Um, and the pattern can be summarised as the Labor Party versus its left-wing critics. So since 1920, the Labor Party and its union proxies have continually struggled to maintain control over the event so that the Labor Party's critics are denied a platform to engage with organised labour on the one day of the year when organised labour comes together. So despite Labor Day ostensibly being a day of working class unity, we can see the history of the event as a history of contestation, a place where conservative Labourism is the default position against which the voices from the left continually struggle for a hearing. And in some eras, as we've discussed, the censorship has been applied with the batons of cops. At other times, it is exercised more subtly but it seems to me one thing is, is certain, as, as capitalism's crises, including the climate emergency, deepens and the Labor Party is unable to deliver systemic or even reformist solutions, the conflicts around Labor Day and on Labor Day will continue and history will continue to repeat itself. The ALP continue, continue to pretend they are for the working class. Through the QCU and under the guise of COVID, they attempted to restrict the march to registered unions and the ALP as part of the greater union movement. It is important history and it's important uh, for workers and particularly trade unionists to understand uh, where this day has come from. Uh, it's come from the struggles of workers initially for the eight-hour day and then over time for other concessions and other improvements and it's been part of an international movement since the beginning of the 1890s. We, we need to recognise the international nature of the day 
Um, one of the things that I noticed yesterday, there was a very large contingent of um, Colombian workers. That was excellent. Um, they they did an interview on uh, on the show. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that's the spirit of international solidarity that we need to revive on Labor Day. Um, we we need people who are speaking from different perspectives about struggles that are going on, uh, and so on. So yes, I think um, it's an important day, and by understanding the history, we can understand why things like uh, the way it transpired this weekend occurred. Uh, this is not out of the blue. This is, this is part of a long pattern. Um, and the history helps us to understand that and uh, it helps people um, maybe look for other ways for, for the day to be uh, organised and, and for the day to be presented.